Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And I can't think of a more personal and intimate way that we are different from each other and that needs to be talked about and divides need to be crossed than with mental illness. I talk a lot about my diagnosis. I am bipolar 2 and I am an alcoholic and I take comfort in those diagnoses because they explain a lot about who I am. Esme Weijun Wang talks about diagnoses in her book of essays, The Collected Schizophrenias. She'll talk about that specifically in a minute. Her book is, I think this word is overused, but luminous is a good one. It's wickedly funny and bracingly honest. And it's about being diagnosed as someone with schizoaffective disorder, bipolar. And she has, of course, a lot more things than that. The Collected Schizophrenia is a New York Times bestseller, but she's also written a novel, The Border of Paradise, which was called a best book of 2016 by NPR and one of the 25 best novels of 2016 by Electric Literature. She was named by Granta as one of the best young American novelists in 2017 and won the Whiting Award in 2018. She was born in the Midwest to Taiwanese parents. She lives in San Francisco and she can be found at EsmeWang.com and on Twitter at EsmeWang. And she's also here with me. Esme, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I loved this book. It was very powerful for me uh, in many different ways. And I'll try not to talk about all of them because I'm sure you get a lot of people telling (laughs) you about their specific identifications (laughs) with your... Um, life. And that's not always fun. But I really connected with it. And the writing is just so beautiful. And I would just love it if you could read an excerpt before we dive into the conversation. Okay. This is from the first essay, Diagnosis. Schizophrenia terrifies. It is the archetypal disorder of lunacy. Craziness scares us because we are creatures who long for structure and sense. We divide the interminable days into years, months, and weeks. We hope for ways to corral and control bad fortune, illness, unhappiness, discomfort, and death, all inevitable outcomes that we pretend are anything but. And still, the fight against entropy seems wildly futile in the face of schizophrenia, which shirks reality in favor of its own internal logic. People speak of schizophrenics as though they were dead without being dead, gone in the eyes of those around them. Schizophrenics are victims of the Russian word gibel, which is synonymous with doom and catastrophe, not necessarily death nor suicide, but a ruinous cessation of existence. We deteriorate in a way that is painful for others. Psychoanalyst Christopher Ballas defines schizophrenic presence as the psychodynamic experience of being with a schizophrenic who has seemingly crossed over from the human world to the non-human environment because the other human catastrophes can bear the weight of human narrative, war, kidnapping, death, but schizophrenia's built-in chaos resists sense. Both Gibel and schizophrenic presence address the suffering of those who are adjacent to the one who is suffering in the first place. Because the schizophrenic does suffer, I have been psychically lost in a pitch dark room. There is the ground which may be nowhere other than immediately below my own numbed feet. Those foot shaped anchors are the only trustworthy landmarks. If I make a wrong move, I'll have to face the gruesome consequence. 
In this bleak abyss, the key is to not be afraid, because fear, though inevitable, only compounds the awful feeling of being lost. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, schizophrenia afflicts 1.1% of the American adult population. The number grows when considering the full psychotic spectrum, also known as the schizophrenias. 0.3% of the American population are diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. 3.9% are diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder. I am aware of the implications of the word afflicts, which supports a neurotypical bias, but I also believe in the suffering of people diagnosed with the schizophrenias and our tormenting minds. Thank you. Thank you. So that first essay, Diagnosis, one of the things you talk about is your doctor's apparent reluctance Mm -hmm. to diagnose you with a schizophrenia. But they seemed to be doing this out of some kind of misplaced um, idea that it would harm you somehow to diagnose you that way. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I actually started to experience psychotic symptoms about eight years before I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And I noticed that um, my psychiatrist that I was seeing at that point um, in the very beginning of that eight-year period seemed to uh, have a reluctance to even use the word hallucinations um, to describe what I was experiencing. Seeing things, um, for the most part, or hearing voices. She would use terms such as... uh, sensory abnormalities or sensory oddities. Um, and I I thought it was strange, but I also, um, you know, looking back, think that she was trying to protect me in some way. Because if she were to uh, formally change my diagnosis in my chart um, under my HMO, that might have all kinds of implications. So it would have implications for my health insurance. It would have implications for how I saw myself. It would have implications for how I described myself if I were asked about my diagnosis by other people, whether that be family or friends or strangers. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I actually knew for many years that I probably had schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. Um, I I knew that that was probably my diagnosis for a while before it was officially declared by my psychiatrist. I really appreciate the way you describe your psychiatrist's motivations because I said something about misplaced uh, sense that it would harm you. And you you sort of very gently offered a correction to that, which is it wasn't exactly misplaced. There is genuine concern about giving that diagnosis because we do live in a society where that diagnosis has incredibly harmful implications in terms of how society treats you, like how, and how your HMO treats you and such. Mm-hmm. So I now feel like I sort of understand why psychiatrists would resist. And also, I wonder, like, so I have my own diagnoses, mm-hmm. which when they came as official from a doctor, felt revelatory, felt like my life fell into place, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I th- you write a little bit about that, about how, okay, that now I know what I am. Mm-hmm. I wonder, maybe your diagnoses came at the exact right time. Do you think your younger self would have been able to process everything it needed to process? Yeah, so I say something in the book to the effect of I I am different from some people in that some people don't like um, diagnoses. They consider them to be um, something that boxes you in um, or something that tries to um, label you in a way that they don't like. But I like diagnoses because they remind me that I am not pioneering an inexplicable experience. Um, When I was told, yes, you know, in the end, I 
I did have schizoaffective disorder bipolar type. It was a relief in a way because I had suspected it for a long time and I was able to um, consider myself as part of a lineage of people who had also experienced um, the same types of things that I had experienced. They had um, had delusions and hallucinations of the types that I had had and um, the kind of manic and depressive episodes, et cetera, et cetera. And one more thing, um, which is that my doctor um, at the time giving me this diagnosis, I want to emphasize that it didn't really change that much in terms of my treatment either because um Psychiatry is one of those things where a diagnosis won't necessarily change uh, the medication that is given. Nothing, um, because the way uh, a diagnosis, a psychiatric diagnosis works is that the medications are, they're given to treat symptoms. And so the medications that I was given prior to my diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, those medications didn't change after um, the new diagnosis. Everything was, in effect, the same. It was just this title that changed. That's important to note, and and it, that's not true of many other dis- other kinds of diseases. Um, that you would change a focus, like in another kind of physical diagnosis, you would might change your focus entirely. Mm-hmm. But they were treating you for the same things, no matter what it said on your chart. But it seems like it was important both because it gave you this sense of a lineage mm-hmm. and a way of making sense of what's happening to you. And also something that is something of a – there's something of a theme in the book about how the way that one thinks about one's diagnoses or one's mental health can change the way you experience it. Mm-hmm. You – if you can think of yourself, let's just say, as so-called high-functioning, and I would love for you to talk about the paradox of high-functioning at some point, but if you can think of yourself as part of a lineage, let's say, or think of yourself as high-functioning, your the way you move through the world might change, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I am constantly struggling in my life with the the term high functioning and I struggle in the book with the term high functioning because the term high functioning is something that is really difficult in the disability rights community. Um, It really um, gives certain kinds of people rights that other people don't get. It gives certain people prejudices that other people uh, do and don't get. Um, it's really, it's a really difficult term. Um, it gives me lots of privileges. Um, and I talk about that a lot in the book. So I talk about how um, I often wear this armor of seeming high functioning um, through how I dress, um, through fashion, through the schools I went to, through my career, um, through my relationships and such. So um, the the way that um, being high functioning exists in my life is in a way my, uh, yeah, the way I protect myself against having this very serious mental health diagnosis because there is so much stigma that comes with the diagnosis of some form of schizophrenia or psychotic disorder. And I'm aware of the problematic nature of the term high-functioning. But another thing I was thinking about, though, is the way that you frame a diagnosis when you give it to someone. Mm-hmm. Like right now, you talk about the book, and it was a little in the excerpt that you read. Even schizophrenia is is this 
it is a term that resonates with like fear for people, right? It's the worst. Mm-hmm. It's it's a kind of mental disorder that people associate with violence, mm-hmm. associate with, um, let's say, truly crazy. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying all those things with quotation marks, not those aren't things that I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it might, for someone who received the diagnosis, seem to be like, well, this is going to be who you are. And there's a stereotype related to this disease. Because I think there's a lot of people that don't realize that you can live a fairly normal life with this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That maybe we, it shouldn't even be called high functioning, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the problem. Mm-hmm. That you can just live with it. Yeah. And however you define high functioning isn't important. You can live not in an institution. You can you can live in the, this world, and I, I want to be careful about saying normal, but it doesn't have to be a curse. Yeah. Um, one thing that I often say um, when people ask me, what, what would you like to say to people who have just received a, a mental health diagnosis or a, a very serious mental health diagnosis, such as bipolar disorder or some form of the schizophrenia. And often my response is something like, remember that you are still you. You are still the person who likes blueberry pie and has a freckle on the right hand and hates the sound of chalk squeaking on a chalkboard. And I say that because people often allow their diagnosis to take over. Um, And it makes sense um, because these diagnoses are often incredibly frightening. But I I really want people to remember that, um, yeah, that they are still them and these things about them um, are still true. It seems like, I think you say this outright, like one of the reasons your doctors were reluctant to use this particular diagnosis for you was that you did seem to be high function, that you you checked the boxes for someone that was living in the world. And one of the so supposed symptoms of this disorder is not being able to hold down a job. And that, I, I actually had a little LOL in my book next to that, is that you have no idea how much trouble I've had holding down a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> Although I'm also crazy, I mean, also literally crazy. Um, But you have a wonderful quote in there about how among psychiatric researchers, having a job is considered one of the major characteristics of being a high-functioning person. A capitalist society values productivity in its citizens above all else, and those with severe mental illnesses are much less likely to be productive in ways that are considered valuable. Mm -hmm. And. Unless, I guess, you're independently wealthy, that I would add. Then you cannot have a job and people will just, people the, will think that you're incredibly successful. Yeah, or that you're eccentric and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that incompatibility with, with capitalism, that there's a dysfunction. You must have a dysfunction, right? Like that the, the checks, the, the boxes that, that are checked as symptoms are things that are ju- just what makes you incompatible with what we consider, again, problematic word, normal right mm-hmm. that 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 if you cannot confine yourself to this very narrow range of behaviors and very narrow ranges of belief then there is something wrong with you for sure and i i find that many of my friends um have what i call productivity anxiety or what other people call productivity <laughs> anxiety which is just um you know, this anxiety that they're not productive enough. And this happens no matter how productive they've been. Um, They could have worked all day and they still um, will find themselves asking at the end of the day, you know, did I do enough? Did I do enough? And um, this is especially the case um, when it comes to chronic illness. And um, I say chronic illness um, to mean some form of physical chronic illness, but it also applies with mental illness as well. And one of the most popular pieces I've ever written was for Elle magazine 
called um, I'm afraid I'm I'm chronically ill and afraid of being lazy or something like that. It was so mm. popular because so many people could relate to it. It was um, I received tons of responses from people who were living with some form of chronic illness or mental illness, um, but even just people who were um, living in the world and feared that they were lazy all the time. And um, again, I think this is something that living in a capitalist society um, engenders in us, this fear that we have not worked enough, that we have never worked enough, that we will never work enough to be worthy in this world. Oh, Esme, you have no idea. We could turn this into just like a therapy session for, <laughs> for me personally. Um, I'm going to, again, resist doing that. But you have a couple of quotes relating to this that I just loved. One is a poem by Cheng Zhao. Is Cheng Zhu? How, how would I pronounce that? Um, yeah, that's, that's about. Yeah. Oh, all right. Wow. Uh, produce. Get results. Make money. Make friends. Make changes. Or you will die of despair. <laughs> I... Sort of want to get that as a tattoo, but <laughs> <laughs> that would probably maybe send myself the wrong message, but yeah. it made me both laugh and shudder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there was something that relates back to that, which is a Rebecca Solnit quote. There is a serenity in illness that takes away all the need to do and makes just being enough. And you say that has not been your experience. And I would say, for me, that's something I have to constantly remind myself. I mean, it hasn't been my experience, literally, because I am one of the people that believes that I will never do enough, by the way. Um, You can substitute be enough Mm -hmm. for do enough, Mm -hmm. I think, for most of us that feel that way. It's not really about, did I do enough? For me, at least, it is about, am I enough? Did I do the things that will signify to the world that I am enough? I think with the Rebecca Solnit quote, um, there's a little bit of an addendum I should probably make to my response in my book, which is that in the times when I've been very acutely ill, it is true that I do not think about being productive because I'm just so, so sick that the only thing I can think about is surviving the next moment or the next, you know, five seconds. Um, But being chronically ill and living at some kind of baseline level of illness um, does mean that I think a lot about productivity and... um, whether or not I am productive. Are you able to come around on that? Is there, I mean, you (laughs) obviously have navigated the world this far. (laughs) And you seem pretty productive. In fact, I had those, what will probably be familiar to a lot of people, those stabs of like, wow, if she's doing that, why can't I do that? What's your excuse, Anna? Yeah, Um, I mean, everybody does. So you seem like you're doing... (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. I know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <sighs> there's a saying in AA, at least, like, don't compare your blooper reel to someone else's highlight reel, mm-hmm. um, which I like as a fairly amusing way to frame that. Um, and it's true. I've only seen your highlight reel. And I've only, not many people have seen my blooper reel, but I keep it running constantly. <laughs> um, but so. <laughs> So what what is the way that you navigate that? Is it in for me sometimes it is even when I'm not acutely ill with depression I have to summon that framework of just getting through this next 5 minutes, just getting through the next thing I have to do. Or sometimes I also frame it as you know what? I made it through the day. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I made it through the day. For me, it's I made it through the day sober. That's a goddamn miracle. Mm -hmm. What else can anyone want? I can go to I can go to bed knowing that I had a miracle in my day today. Tomorrow I'll deal with tomorrow. How is it that you navigate that feeling? Um, 
so much of the time, I feel like I didn't do anything. Like, so much of the time, I feel like my days go by and I just wait until five o'clock because at five o'clock I can go to sleep. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just go to sleep now that it's five o'clock and then tomorrow I can try again. And um, so there's that. There's this other thing that um, my therapist who specializes in working with people with chronic illness taught me, which is about option two. And um, the idea behind option two is that um, option one is just um, deciding that the day can be dedicated to just surviving and, you know, getting through the next five seconds. And that's fine and wonderful. And often you have to have an option one day. But Sometimes you can have an option two day, which is that you acknowledge that there is suffering in your day and that you, uh, if you're going to have suffering in your day, you might as well do something productive while you're suffering. <laughs> and so, you know, it may not be perfect and uh, it may definitely is not going to be as quote-unquote good as it would be if you were not suffering. Um, but you might as well write the thing or, you know, uh, answer the email or whatever. Um, and that's your option too. So sometimes I, uh, I kind of commit myself to an option two day. There's a lot of freedom in lowering one's standards for oneself, mm -hmm. you know, especially if your standards are unreasonably, impossibly, always unachievably high. Um, there's a Stephen King quote I like, which is done is better than perfect. Mm -hmm. And for writers, I think especially that's a, I, I can believe that for everyone else but myself. But but if it's true for other people, it must be true for me. So, yeah. you know, and I can operate from there. There's also this workshop that I used to teach um, around the country, but I also had this online version called Ask Kicking with Limitations. And um, one big component of the class had to do with workarounds because as a chronically ill person, I found that creating workarounds was a huge part of how I had to adapt to um, to work or, you know, to like a life with work. So um, I used to sit at my laptop and write for hours, but um, I actually wrote basically all of the collected schizophrenias um, lying in bed on my iPhone or on my iPad because I couldn't sit. Um, or I didn't have the strength to sit and type. And so I had that workaround of lying in bed and tapping on my phone or on my iPad. And so, you know, um, I had things like that, workarounds. I sometimes remind myself that if I'm able to describe how I'm feeling in my head mm -hmm. to myself, if I'm able to put the words together there, then I might as well put them on a page. There's no, <laughs> like, what, <laughs> like, why? Why would I? Why would I stop at my head? You that's, know? that's great. And I they might that. be useful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they might be useful later. Who knows? Right. I want to take a quick break, but but we'll be right back. As per usual, I am wearing an item of clothing that I got through Stitch Fix. I heartily endorse this service. But they describe themselves in a way that's probably, I mean, they're professionals. And so I should read the ad that professionals wrote, right? Which is why you should also use Stitch Fix, because they're professional stylists. I am an amateur ad copywriter. They're professional ad copywriters. I am an amateur stylist. They're professional stylists. That's why they do it better. That is why celebrities look so good. They have personal stylists that make sure their outfit is always on point. And with Stitch Fix, you can tell I'm reading now. And with Stitch Fix, you can afford to have a professional stylist curate your look, too. It is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. It has the brands you know and love, plus exclusive styles you won't find elsewhere. After completing your style profile, 
which, by the way, you get to keep working on. It's not like you just do one style profile and then you never get to tell it again, like what you want to wear. You there has little fun, do you like this or this kind of quizzes all the time. Your expert personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your style and preferences. With Stitch Fix, everyone can look their best. They have solutions for men, women, and kids all over the U.S. And now, if you happen to be in the U.K., the U.K. as well. There is no subscription needed. Pick between automatic shipments or only getting new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are free. And the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep from the box. Discover new styles and find unique pieces with Stitch Fix. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash friends and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in the box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends, stitchfix.com slash friends. When you're shopping for the holidays, don't forget about thanking those amazing nurses, doctors, dentists, and people who work in medicine and healthcare that have helped you throughout the year. That is what they suggest. I have to tell you that someone wrote to me and said that if you have purely a professional relationship with a doctor, nurse, or other healthcare professional, you probably shouldn't get them a Christmas gift. But you probably know, all of us know, somewhere in our friend circle, there is a doctor or a nurse or a dentist or some other med tech person that wears scrubs. And if this person that you care about wears scrubs, they should have the scrubs that are the most comfortable and, believe it or not, the most stylish available, and that is Figs. Figs is an amazing company that, again, makes scrubs that are stylish and functional and comfortable for the people who deserve it the most. For years, nurses, doctors, dentists, and other medical professionals were forced to wear scratchy, ill-fitting scrubs. Not only were they ugly and uncomfortable, comfortable, but they weren't designed with innovative technical properties to protect and hold life-saving tools. Figs creates the highest quality medical apparel so that medical professionals can look their best, feel their best, and perform their best every day. I think I've mentioned before, these are, yes, made for medical professionals, but I encourage you, if this is something that you might be interested in, to check out their uh, joggers, which look very stylish and also have tons of pockets on them. And if you're someone that, for instance, doesn't like carrying a purse, I can see these joggers being very useful, just like on an everyday basis. Isn't it every woman's dream to have more pockets? That is why I really think I'm going to buy these joggers just for myself. There are also gift cards available if you don't feel comfortable picking out a specific pair of scrubs for the person that you care about. So next time the doctor, nurse, dentist, dermatologist, or pediatrician in your life saves your day, makes your day, tell them thank you by sending them figs. Show how much you care at the end of the year with figs. This holiday season, figs is going to make it easy by providing you with 15% off your first purchase when you use offer code FRIENDS. Get ready to love your scrubs. And they should get ready to love their scrubs. Head to wearfigs.com, that's W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter offer code FRIENDS. One of the things I found fascinating about the way you talk about your delusions mm-hmm. is how real they are, obviously. That's what makes them delusions is that they seem so real to you and they're not real to other people. But that you have to navigate those by just making a conscious choice to know that they aren't real. Is that I'm what I find myself thinking about was seeing, hearing things and then deciding not to believe them. It's hard to express, but I, I would love for you to talk about that space. Yeah. Um, so this is how I would describe um, delusions when people would come over and sit with me um, when I was having a, a long psychotic period. So I would say it's like if you looked out the sky and it was blue and everybody else in the world told you It was, I don't know, purple with green polka dots. And they insisted it was purple with green polka dots. Like everybody, literally everybody else in the world insisted it was purple with green polka dots. And for a while, you might say it's not, it's blue. But if everybody kept insisting you were wrong, eventually you would probably get tired of arguing with them 
Or you might realize that there was something wrong with you and you should probably adjust the way you were responding and just, you know, like inside you would know that you saw things differently, but outside you would say, yes, you're right. The sky is purple with green polka dots. So that's how I explained it. <laughs> that's such an interesting example to use because it it centers the experience that most people have of seeing the sky as blue, mm-hmm. right? It makes that the normal for the person you're describing it to. Mm-hmm. And to have to think about what it would feel like if your normal, mm-hmm. your baseline, mm-hmm. was not what everyone else experienced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so um, that that basically was what it was like when I, you know, for example, had the Guitard's delusion when I believed that I was dead. And, um, like, I would know that everybody else insisted that I was alive, but there was no point in arguing with people all the time. And I might as well go to these doctor's appointments and... Um, I might as well, you know, try these treatments and I might as well, because maybe it's true that all these people are right and I'm wrong. And maybe if I do what they tell me, I'll get fixed and my perception will be fixed. Because if everybody else insists this thing and I am the one person who says something else, maybe it's true that I'm wrong. So I might as well try. That's kind of how it went for me at that time. But I just love the idea that you can kind of experience both being true at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I love, because I think about it a lot for myself, the idea of belief as a choice. Mm-hmm. like deciding, okay, even though my evidence is here, even though there's evidence for this one thing and I have not as much evidence for this other thing, I'm still going to believe the other thing mm-hmm. or I'm going to allow for the possibility there's the other thing. For me, the area that I use that thinking a lot in is mm-hmm. around spirituality Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I think we can agree there's not a lot of evidence of, <laughs> there's not a lot of hard evidence for things beyond human power. Yeah, hence, hence <laughs> faith. faith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've written a little bit before about how my own experience of having my mom uh, probably had an undiagnosed mental something. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was interesting about her was that she was a believer in things beyond our human perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, ghosts and goblins. No, I don't goblins. Ghosts, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, things that could communicate with us. Fate. She was big into runes and tarot and things. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with that kind of being somewhat normal mm-hmm. to believe in that. And always allowed for the fact that it could be true. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean— could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that in some ways opened up a path for com- eventually coming to believe in God, which some people don't make that connection. But I know that for you, you have a spiritual practice that's around some of these other things. Right. Can you draw any parallels between your experience of your mental illness and your experience of those things? And by that, I just mean not that you have to be crazy to believe something, but the choice to believe, like the idea that you will, yeah. this is the thing that I, I want to follow. Sure. So um, in the book, I talk about some of my early searchings and kind of my earlier searchings had to do with the Catholic Church. And that had to do with my husband being Catholic. And my um, kind of 
reading lots of Catholic literature and lots of Christian literature, reading lots of Jesuit literature, going to Catholic Mass. Um, and this, this was all during the time before we got married because we were trying to decide whether to have a Catholic ceremony um, because if you have a Catholic ceremony, you both have to be Catholic. And so I was trying to decide whether or not to convert. And um, I suppose I could have um, just converted, um, but I, I felt very strongly that if I converted, I needed to really, really believe it. Like I didn't want to to kind of half-ass <laughs> it. Like I really needed to believe. Yeah. And so um, I spent basically a year um, studying. And part of all of this studying had to do with this feeling I'd always had about spirituality and God, which is that I always thought it would be really nice to to have such a belief or to believe in that, um, which sounds kind of condescending, but that it, that wasn't mm. how I felt. I felt really like wistful about it. Like I was, I always just um, felt that, you know, if you were, if you were lost, um, if you were, if you were upset or, you know, if you, you know, and, or, or, you know, whatever. And then you felt you could have a place to go or a prayer you could say, like the fact that you might be able to find comfort in, in something really the idea that you could just boggled my mind like I just wanted that so badly and I really longed for that and so as I was studying and as I was going to mass and everything I really really hoped that I could um, convert and really mean it but I think I always got stuck at this one part in Mass where I can't remember what this part is called, but there's this one part in Catholic Mass where everybody recites what they believe as part of Catholicism. And there is a lot of really intense stuff <laughs> that you have to say you believe. Yeah. And I really got stuck there. And um, my husband and I... Um, went to meet with a Jesuit priest and we had a talk and at the end of the talk he told us y'all are not ready to have a Catholic ceremony and um, this doesn't mean you can't have one later um, but you should get married without one and um, and so we didn't have a Catholic ceremony we had a secular ceremony um, and so that was kind of the beginning of my searchings. Um, but I never let go of this hope and for something that I could go to in suffering. And I think that when it comes to illness and suffering in illness, um, a lot of people who are chronically ill or who are suffering do search for something spiritually. And um, I've talked to a few people who, um, who have had similar experiences. And it's funny because we all end up looking at the same books, like Thich Nhat Hanh's No Mud, No Lotus, and um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and things like that. And so I, uh, yeah, I just searched and I prayed and I looked at um, tarot cards and I, you know, I, w I basically just went for this spiritual searching and, and there's a chapter or two in the, in the book, The Collected Schizophrenia, so that's about that. So um, in my case, I think a lot of the spiritual searching had to do with suffering and wanting to find something that could give me an anchor um, that would keep me moored in a time that was very unmoored. I think in the end that is the motivation behind a lot of maybe all faith. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I remain fascinated by deciding that that's what you're going to do. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Um, that I, I had a very similar experience with Christianity in the sense that I used to think, again, hope, trying not to be condescending, but with wistfulness, like, that would be so nice. Mm-hmm. I want that. And then eventually I was just like, okay, I'll have it. I'll just, (laughs) like, why not? Um, And that's allowed me to find comfort. But have have you been able to I've just made a choice. Yeah. Well, I made a choice to believe, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I, that sky, I'm just going to say it's blue, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, Mm -hmm. you— Opinions may differ, and I, I, I agree. I, I acknowledge that opinions differ. But and this is maybe actually the whole "what color is the sky" thing might be a perfect metaphor because the belief that the sky is blue rather than purple with polka dots—is that what you said? Yeah, purple with green polka dots. Um, purple with green polka dots doesn't change the way you necessarily move through the world, mm-hmm. right? Like. You could just say, I mean, you'd be like, okay, you see purple, green polka dots. I, I see blue. Uh, but, you know, left is still left. Right is still right. Like mm. two plus two is four. And we can agree to meet at the same time of day. The holidays mean celebrations with friends, company parties, and family gatherings. So why not look stylish and feel comfortable all season long? Wear Rothy's. True story. I was at my in-laws for Thanksgiving, and I had a pair of Rothy's on, and my sister-in-law was like, oh, are those Rothy's? And I said, yes, they are. And I talked about how they were a sponsor and how I had several pairs. And she said, oh, right. Well, you know, I have this friend, and that's basically all she wears. And she loves them, and she not only has them for herself, but she has them for her kids as well. And my sister-in-law asked, is it true you can just throw them in the wash? Yes, it is true you can just throw them in the wash. And she said, is it true they're made from recycled bottles? And I said, it's true they're made from recycled bottles because she was just showing me my niece's new fleece jacket, which is also made from recycled bottles. So I think I may have sold at least one customer Hey, Jill, offer code friends if you're listening. And you also, dear listener, should be using offer code friends. They make a great gift as well. They'll thank you with every step. They're perfect for the women in your life who are always on the go and love a balance of fashion and function. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns exchanges. No risk, no worries, no reason not to try. I personally love their uh, new line of... Chelsea Boots, um, they have a pair that is made with the recycled water bottles and wool. And so it is perfect for this time of year. Go to rothys.com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats in time for the holidays. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. It's just funny, like, I, what, it's what I kept thinking about when I was reading about your experience of the suffering that you've had with delusions and, and working your way through your own mind is people often ask me, do you really believe? Mm-hmm. Do you really believe in mm-hmm. God? Like, as though I would say, it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why I would say it if I didn't believe it. But, and that question... The idea of really believing something yeah. just fascinates me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, no. Yeah. So do you really believe? Do you I mean that's that do you think about whether or not that's important to really believe in spirituality? And yeah. like powers and forces beyond ours? Yeah, I think um that's a really good question. And then, like, the question of, like, how important is it to really believe in any one specific thing? Like, how important is it to really believe that doing this certain ritual turns the wine into the actual blood mm-hmm. of Christ? Like, how, is, how important is it to you as a Catholic to believe that it mm-hmm. actually is the blood of Christ, you know, for you to go to mass and then do and then believe that every single week. Um, what if you go and you act as though you believe it, or 
you know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what What is the functional difference? You know, I mean, except the comfort. Yeah. There is comfort in deciding that that is what you really Right. Believe. And so in my case, with the, with the converting to Catholicism, I decided that I could not convert to Catholicism if I did not actually believe that it was, if, if it became, if I did not actually believe that it became the blood and body of Christ. So in that case, I did not, did not think I could do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It, I, I, I find it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it just the, 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 power such a cliche way to put it, but the power of the mind just is fascinating to me it's such a it is the force that creates our world it's just the way that we think about it yeah, yeah. i want to move on very quickly before we say goodbye another part of your book that i i found i had exclamation points next to is that part of your self-care ritual is the great british baking bake <laughs> it, it depends case? on where you're watching it yeah the great british bake off mm-hmm what do you mean by where you're watching it? Um, it's either called the Great British Baking Show or the Great British Bake Off, depending on where you're watching it. I think in huh. the UK they call oh, it. Oh, I thought Great you meant like where you're watching it is where they're not. I thought you meant like that's how you determine if it's self care. I was like, oh no no no. Huh. <laughs> I think in the UK they call it the Great British Baking Show, and I think in the US they call it the Great British Bake Off. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Um, I I also think that's a great prescription myself, and also uh, I believe that your your husband and your your pet, your dog, mm -hmm. those are the things that you turn to when for self care. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, they're very grounding to me, and I had a psychic tell me years and years ago that my dog Daphne um, was like a great spiritual teacher for me. Um, which I found um, to be true, I think. Um, I, I look at her and I often learn a lot from her and the way she acts, um, especially in the way she behaves um, in response to, um, I think she's been through some trauma and so the way she acts to certain stimuli is very interesting to me. So like if you're cuddling with her and then you accidentally move in a way that freaks her out she'll jump off the bed or like get away from you and then you'll want her to stay or like to bring her back but she'll just refuse and I've it used to really hurt my feelings <laughs> um and I used to be like oh no come back please um but now I, I'm like no like Daphne has her boundaries and like she <laughs> you know, she, she, you know, got triggered and now she's just taking time for herself and she'll come back and cuddle when she's ready. Anyway, that's just an example, but. No, I think that we could, that's a wonderful place to end. Be like Daphne. <laughs> Be like Daphne. What would Daphne do? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. 